Welcome to the PaxSex podcast, available on Apple and Google Podcasts and sponsored by Jetliner Cabin's ebook app. This is episode 67 of the show where we talk about how the airline passenger experience is evolving in a mobile, social, vocal world. I'm Mary Kirby and I'm joined by my co-host Max Flight. Max, how are you doing? And should we call you Max 9 or Max 10 these days? <laughs> Maybe Max 11, just to be extra special. <laughs> But uh, I'm good, Mary. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I attended the FAA UAS Symposium. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in a few years' time, we might be talking about the passenger experience on board autonomous Uber aircraft, perhaps built by Embraer. Ooh, what did you think of that symposium then, Max? It was excellent. The okay. FAA folks, and they were there in force. There were a lot of a lot of them there. They are uh, very impressive, very knowledgeable, very professional, very in tune with all of the issues, really, from you know, all of the different stakeholder uh, perspectives. So uh, it was a very, very good session. Well, it sounds like something we, we should talk about in a future episode then. Um, sure. So I look forward to talking to our guest for this show, Romy Girl Network Deputy Editor and Aviation Journalist Extraordinaire, John Walton. John, you're over there right now, yeah? I certainly am, yes. Uh, just finished up at the Paris Air Show and uh, yeah, lots of interesting stuff to talk about this year. Oh, absolutely. You've been uh, a busy, busy boy. You've had a very busy dance card. <laughs> uh, you've already done a round of shows, but uh, I'm so glad you're going to be able to join us. Um, before we get started, we'd like to thank the Jetliner Cabins ebook app for sponsoring this podcast. Jetliner Cabins is the story of how scientists, designers, engineers, maintenance, and marketing specialists have transformed the stark tubular interiors of typical airliners into unique settings. This ebook app invites readers to explore the expertise, discover the details, and enjoy the fascinating world of Jetliner Cabins. Visit JetlinerCabins.com to learn more and to download the app. Very good. Well, let's get started and take a look at some of the PaxX news stories that are making headlines. The 737 MAX and Boeing's response to its worldwide ban on safety grounds was expected to dominate the 53rd Paris Air Show, and it did. John, you covered the air show from nose to tail, so to speak, for Runway Girl Network, and you reported that Boeing was in apology mode throughout the event. What was the mood like at the Boeing chalet and during Boeing press conferences? Oh, you know, somber apology mode is very much the what they were going for. Um, pretty much any time they, they talked to anybody, they started off with an apology, no matter who it was. Um, and it wasn't just the folks on the commercial side. I mean, their initial press conference started out with their CFO apologizing, then the head of commercial airplanes apologizing, then the head of defense and space apologizing. You know, it was it, it started to almost get a little much. Um, you know, Boeing seems to be acknowledging that it got the initial tone wrong, um, but it, it, clearly it's trying another tack. Um, I'm not entirely sure this is working either. Um, you know, I don't think it's wise to use phrases like thoughts and prayers. Uh, that doesn't strike me as the ideal messaging in this day and age. Mm. But uh, but yeah, there is. It's it obviously coloured the entire show. Um, Boeing is in this sort of cold stasis at the moment in terms of in terms of its aircraft, um, and you know that's half the industry these days. John, uh, over at Liam News, uh, he, uh, Scott Hamilton, of course, uh, the editor at Liam News, he quotes one journalist as describing one of the Boeing briefings as a funeral briefing. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> but 
also, I, I think that uh, Boeing is right to take this more measured tone because, look, people are still afraid to fly on the aircraft. And that's just a fact. And you're seeing it on social media every day. People expressing their views about flying on the max and of course the seattle times has done some tremendous work in covering the whys and wherefores of mcas and the individuals within boeing who were uncomfortable with mcas quote mcas gained power and lost uh safeguards so was the feeling that there's culpability there um john was there contrition was it genuine um I think Boeing is being very careful, and indeed Boeing's lawyers are being very careful, not to accept responsibility as such. And so, you know, that's, to an extent, that that creates a a difficult set of messages to work through. Um, I agree with you 100%, Mary. People, normal people, people who do not listen to the PaxX podcast, are worried about flying the Max. You know, I live in a small French village, you know, in the centre of the country, and everybody from the gardener to the hairdresser to the mayor has said has asked me something about the Max over the last few months. And, you know, I, 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 that is to an extent a very successful branding exercise for the Max. The problem is that what it's branded is something that's not great. And, you know, and I think that there is a certainly a role for Boeing, and this is something I was hoping to ask them about, but they um, all of their press conferences were, were cut very short, um, is really what role Boeing has in reassuring passengers in that sort of B2B to C world that its airline customers' planes are safe. And that's going to be a really interesting thing for them to have to do. Um, and it's something that feels like is not even on their radar yet. Because, and this is a little bit, you know, airshow media industry inside baseball. But if that was something that was on their radar, and if that was something that they acknowledged the need for, they went about it very badly. Um, particularly in the announcement of this big IAG um, letter of intent um, for for 200 737 aircraft. Um, They are Maxes, but uh, notably IAG's press release did not call them the Max. They called it the 737, 8 and 10. Uh, Whereas Boeing's press release used the word Max 14 times. I counted. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it's an interesting time for, for Boeing, interesting time for the Max, interesting time for passengers. That came out of left field, that big order. Um, and now I read somewhere that Airbus didn't get a chance to bid on that. Is that, is that true? Well, that's what Christian Shearer said. Christian Shearer, the, the, the new chief sales honcho at Airbus, essentially said, to paraphrase, uh, we'd have loved the opportunity to bid for that business um, and was very clear about it. Now, um, there's a point at which if you get an exceedingly high discount, you just say, actually, you know what, I'm not going to shop around. I'm going to buy that car. You know, uh, are are people shopping around Volkswagens these days and getting great deals? Maybe. Um, and, you know, it feels rather the same at Boeing. Um, you know, the, the announcements at the show were very quiet otherwise. Um, extensions, basically, of, of orders, a few conversions from other customers. Uh, you know, 20 Dreamliners here to Korean Air. Uh, one, a 777-200LR to Turkmenistan Airlines. Um, and a few freighters in bridging the gap between the current version of the 777 and the now further delayed uh, 777X. Um, the show opened with yet more bad news for Boeing, of course, in that GE said that their engine is going to be late. So, uh, yeah, uh, not a lot of great news for Boeing. That um, 737 order from IAG um, was 
A lot of people said it was a vote of confidence. I think if you're confident, you name the plane the same thing that the seller names it. Um, I think it was a vote of of confidence in Boeing, if not necessarily the aircraft. And let's not forget, this is just a letter of intent. That is the weakest form of order that that you can possibly have. Yeah, underscore. You you could sign a letter of intent for for some aircraft for for Runway Girl Airlines. And uh, and and you wouldn't have to go buy anything. I don't feel. So. <laughs> As I learned when I covered the story of Primaris ordering the seven eight seven about fifteen years ago, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, usually when there's a letter of intent, at least in in my experience, there's some degree of uh, genuine desire to consummate the deal. But the the fact that Airbus was left out of this is kind of surprising. I mean, even if an operator has in mind just exactly what they want to purchase, they'll usually bring in the competition just to get the bidding down. But like you say, John, maybe maybe Boeing offered a price that was so low that IAG just felt they had to uh, had to grab it. I, I tell you, Max, the number going on the air show was gasp-worthingly shocking. Um, in terms of what the percentage that the Boeing got off the the usual discount price, let alone list price, if that number is true, um, which is why I'm not saying the number because I I have no independent confirmation of that. Um, if that were true, and I were AG, I probably wouldn't have gone shopping to the other guys either, right? Um, it's a useful chess move for Willie Walsh to make. Um, I am sure that at this point, IAG is large enough to be for, for dual fleeting to make very logical sense anyway um you know we're seeing we've seen for a lot of airlines one of the big problems that they're hitting is that when they grow to a certain size and something goes wrong with one of their airframes or one of their engine types an increasingly large portion of their fleet is grounded and that's you know a prudent ceo will always split the risk and, you know, I think that, that it's fairly clear that these planes will be going to the non-hub locations. So that's um, Vueling, the, the, the Spanish slash European low-cost carrier. Um, they're going to go to Level, which is the, the new brand that they're growing. Um, and they've also said uh, that they might, they'll be uh, aiming for the British Airways Gatwick Corporation, which is very much the sort of unloved child of the British Airways world. Um, it gets all the all the cast-offs. Um, crucially, I don't think that they'll be going to the core hub operations, because whereas the A320 family can do containerized cargo, the 737 families cannot. The, the size of the hold is just not big enough for any of those containerized cargo operations. So if that's something that you do as an airline, that's an aircraft that you may well not be uh, may, too interested in. John, you were gloriously prolific at the Paris Air Show, really hit it out of the park. And I know our readers really appreciated it. And one of your pieces entitled Paris Curiosities mentioned that there was a new regulator-related message from Boeing um, within an order for 20 converted freighter 737-800BCF aircraft for ASL holdings, and that the airframer made a comment about, quote, global certification in reference to the validation type certificate process for an aircraft modification, or VTC as it's known. Um, I had a chance to meet with Embraer executives last week uh, when I was given the opportunity to fly on the Legacy 450 out of uh, Boston. And I actually posed this question to them. Uh, 
And uh, they echoed some of Boeing's comments about the value of this process and said that whilst it might be under some scrutiny, um, they believe that everything will stay in play and that it's been largely beneficial to industry. So I thought it was interesting, especially given Embraer's relationship with Boeing now. Uh, they were very much mirroring comments that Boeing made um, at the Paris Air Show. Was there any, I mean, you seem to be the only journalist who actually picked this up. Was there anyone else asking questions about Boeing's messaging when it comes to global certification and in the context of what's happening with the MAX? Not really. Um, I did manage to get a question into Isan Munir, who's the Boeing chief sales uh, chief salesperson um, on that, you know, um, essentially the, the, what, what, what Boeing did was they uh, put in a new line um, which has never appeared before in any Boeing press release. I did a, a full set of searches of both Boeing and Entity Google, and this is a, a set of, a, a phrase that is entirely new. And it reads, already operating on four continents, Africa, Asia, Europe, and North America, after entering service last year, the 737-800-BCF is certified by various global regulators, the US Federal Aviation Administration, the European Aviation Safety Agency, Civil Aviation Administration of China, and Russia's Federal Air Transport Agency. This was entirely new. And it smacked very much to me as a, uh, as a MAX-related note to uh, to editors around Boeing's plans for the future. Um, and Isan Munir played that down. He said it's just a comment about the process you go through when you certify an airplane or you uh, get a validation-type certificate for modification or whatever. Um, if that was the case and had always been the case, I'm fascinated that we've never heard that message before. Now, it's great for the Boeing and Embraer partnership that they are indeed on the same page here, um, not least because a big part of this Boeing-Embraer deal is the fact that we're going to have Embraer engineers essentially designing Boeing next, Boeing's next airplane at this point, right? So uh, a shared understanding of the certification process that will be required is very valuable. Um, now, um, I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of, uh, for, for, from a Boeing perspective, in terms of highlighting the fact that it is global. I suspect this will take a significantly greater amount of effort um, in terms of getting the Max flying outside the US than it will inside the US. And and I think this is in, in many ways foreshadowing that. Hmm. Well, there was uh, another interesting announcement at Paris from Philippine low-cost carrier Cebu Pacific. And they said they're going to install 460 seats in an all-economy configuration on board the A330-900neo and I think, John, that's a new Max Pax figure. How were they able to uh, pull off such a high density in that aircraft? Right, which it's it's pretty interesting from a passenger experience perspective. Um, and there's there's two real ways. So the first is that they've rejigged the lavatories uh, to move some of those around to to save space. And the second is uh, something that that we learned later, um, which is that they've had to increase the size of the doors. So, uh, in the essence, to, to perhaps oversimplify, um, the doors are getting bigger, which means that more people can escape the aircraft in the required time. Um, not hugely bigger. Um, they're just adding a, a, a slightly larger door in the, in the place of the existing doors, right? It's not the sort of thing that's happening with the A321, where uh, they're moving doors around quite a bit and, and, and shifting things uh, around. But, um, yeah, it's a really interesting thing. 
Um, look, I'm a large Western person. I do not necessarily want to be flying Cebu Pacific um, with their, you know, three abreast configuration, uh, sorry, uh, 333 configuration uh, down the back of those A330s. That said, this aircraft is not for me. This aircraft is for the Philippine market, um, which has uh, a huge number of Filipino and Filipina diaspora people who are working largely in the service industry all around Asia. Um, you know, they're looking at flights to Hong Kong. They're looking at flights up into Japan. Um, so these are flights of largely a few hours. And these flights uh, at the cost that Cebu Pacific can provide them mean that people who wouldn't ordinarily be able to go home uh, to visit family, uh, to have family visit them, can now travel. Um, so I can't really be mad at this. Um, Cebu Pacific is an airline that has always been extremely clear about what it offers. Um, it has always been extremely clear that the focus is cost. And that is at least honest. You know, it is setting passenger experience, expectations and meeting them. John, and you've been exceedingly clear about your feelings on this matter. As I was following you on social, I was following you on Twitter. You were very, very clear. Um, there's a photo of you, uh, journalist Seth Miller and another journalist floating around on um, an AirAsia A330 at Paris on the Nine Abreast Triple. Is that right? Was that AirAsia? Uh, no, so it's the, the Nine Abreast uh, a, a different A330 Neo. Yeah. Okay, um, okay. And it, I know, yeah, you know, rather... <laughs> it, was, it was comfortable. Um, and that's fine because the price that AirAsia is selling this, you know, that's a hundred dollars from Bangkok to Tokyo. You know what? If I care enough about passenger experience, maybe between me and the person I'm traveling with, we'll buy three seats and create our own little sort of Euro business situation there. Right. Mm -hmm. Or for a few hundred dollars more, we'll upgrade to their premium flatbed, which has, uh, you know, angle lie flat seats up in, in the pointy end of the plane. And in in all fairness to AirAsia, the seat pitch, even in the tri the the three 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 configuration, is excellent. My knees did not touch the seat in front of me. Yeah, I, although let's be fair, Seth Miller, uh, who's previously written for Runway Girl Network, um, we know he's of average build and size. He's he's kind of the size of a crash test dummy. Um, and so seeing him in that picture, no, he really is. It was very convenient, actually. Because he can sit on a seat and you'd have a fair idea of, you know, uh, what they're using to test these seats. And that is, he, that he's that size. And on this AirAsia, this picture of him and, and John floating around, you know, he's clearly too big for the seat. Now that seat's what, 16 point, is it 16? 16.5. Yeah. 16.5 width, which kind of beggars believe. I, and I understand everything you're saying, John. It's all very logical. It's a specific market. And the Western size passenger is larger, but kind of more broadly, I'm seeing a, a bit of a pivot from Airbus that is kind of remarkable because as you reported in a separate piece for us, Airbus is really giving the Tenebrest A350 a push, um, which takes uh, the passenger experience to something a little bit more akin to what we're talking about here, the Nine Abreast A330. And it's a bit of a U-turn from Airbus's prior messaging about having a comfort standard. It was only five or six years ago that Airbus was pushing a comfort standard and wanted one to be set, including uh, for regulators to have a, a think about a comfort standard. So quite a pivot from Airbus in terms of what they view as comfort and the reason behind it. Um, what are your thoughts about that pivot? Yeah, well, it, it sure is interesting, Mary. Um, 
I think this is a pivot that is largely coming from the top at Airbus. Obviously, basically the entire top end of the company has changed. Um, new combined CEO of Airbus Group and Airbus Commercial in the shape of Guillaume Faurie. Uh, new chief salesman in the shape of Christian Shearer. If I'm, if I'm brutally honest, I think that Christian Shearer is not yet um, up to the uh, level of detail on passenger experience that perhaps Runway Girl network readers and indeed listeners are. I noticed that there was a certain amount of um, uh, Airbus press <laughs> work to um, to follow up on on the things that, that Christian said and to um, um, clarify, shall we say, um, some of the the things that he mentioned, including saying that cabins are esoteric. And I think indeed that that this this need to focus on passenger experience is is perhaps best shown with the lack of messaging uh, around the horrified noises people were making around the uh, A321 XLR, um, which I'm sure we're also going to be talking about today. Yes. Right. Um, Airbus basically didn't have the defensives on, no, 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 this this is going to be a long-haul type cabin. This is not going to be the same cabin that, that you're putting on a you know, an aircraft that flies three hours, right? Um, I, this whole message around the, the A350 is a weird one. I followed up with uh, François Godron, who is the uh, Vice President Marketing. We'll have more on that over the next uh, over the next week, I would think. Um, there's some really interesting uh, thoughts that Airbus are doing. There's some really interesting things that Airbus is trying to push. Um, a lot of this is also around your planning assumptions that you use. So... I think that what Christian Schurer was essentially trying to say was that if you make an A350 and a 777 as uncomfortable as each other, then the A350 will fly slightly further, which you might expect from a slightly smaller airplane. I mean, it's 24 centimetres or 9.5 inches if you still count in bushels. Um, it's a much smaller aircraft in terms of passenger experience, which means you'll have a much worse ride the problem is that you're not really comparing apples with apples. Um, you're comparing apples with crab apples, which are automatically smaller. <laughs> um, and, and, and that's an issue, right? Because one of the things that airlines are trying to do is figure out, well, OK, what are the actual economics of these planes? And obviously no one really knows the economics of the 777X yet, since it hasn't flown. Uh, and so Airbus is to an extent using some of the planning assumptions and trying to, to, to get some messaging around its performance at the higher end of the market in terms of capacity. So without the A380, um, Airbus, basically, if you want 400 people, you're going to have to pack them in. Yeah, but Boeing Boeing management must surely be saying to themselves, see, we knew you'd do this. Like, I, mean, I think it was Randy's blog or one of the Boeing blogs years ago when Airbus started pu trying to push that 11 abreast A380, the kind of final gasp before giving up on the program um you know and and boeing saying see who are the who's, who's airbus to lecture us on seat size standards and everything else and this just you know adds weight to actually boeing's argument uh a couple of years ago saying hey, you'd, yeah, you'd join totally, us event totally. you're we're gonna join us eventually yeah, yeah 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 absolutely i mean and 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 worse it's not even joining right it's actively worse because you're splitting 24 fewer centimetres, uh, nine and a half fewer inches across the 10 people in the back of that plane. Oh, how the worm turns, John. <laughs> in, in, indeed, indeed, indeed. Well, of course, uh, Airbus 
got some orders for the A321 XLR at uh, the Paris Air Show, including from American Airlines and uh, Cebu Pacific, I think. Mm. It, this is kind of being positioned as a <laughs> middle-of-the-market aircraft, and some of the airlines are looking towards transatlantic non-stops. Of course, it's a narrow body, but I've seen a lot of chatter here and there uh, wondering if people are really going to want to fly uh, long haul in a narrow body. John, what did you find uh, the mood to be on that topic? At this point, you know, not to misquote uh, Lucy Ricardo, but Airbus and airlines have got a lot of spinning to do on this one um, in terms of how they're going to make the A320 family comfort enough to fly in for 10 hours, right? That's what this is. This isn't a sort of six and a half, seven hour transatlantic capable plane now. This can fly 10 hours. That's London to Beijing, Right. It's an incredible technical achievement. Right. I, I, the A321 XLR was fairly well, uh, eventually fairly well telegraphed in advance of the show um, after a little bit of some some question marks about whether Airbus would be launching it. But I'm not sure a lot of people imagined that it would be a full 4700 nautical mile range. I think people are expecting, you know, another f- a few hundred miles here and there off the, the 4000 that it was previously. But this is a this is a really long haul aircraft now. Um, and I think that part of the problem with it is Airbus didn't have a how this isn't going to suck uh, slide, <laughs> right? Uh, for lack of for lack of anything slightly more elegant, right? Um, now, look, I think that we, we've seen some start uh, of the uh, uh, around a lot of these uh, longer haul A321s in particular. So you're looking at things like uh, Tap Air Portugal's um, has, you know, normal business class up front, and then, you know, fully flatbeds, uh, Thompson Vantage, uh, and then a, a fairly well laid out economy class in the back with all the bells and whistles. Fly Dubai, same thing, right? So I think the, the, the trick here is that airlines have to say fairly quickly um, what they're going to be offering exactly, you know? Um, are we going to be seeing uh, Cebu Pacific offering fully flat business class? Absolutely not. They're very clear about that. They want to go max packs for um, and, and, and really start flying from regional Philippine centers uh, to, to medium and long haul destinations, right? Um, American Airlines, uh, you know, this opens up any number of routes from Philadelphia, right? Philadelphia can basically go to all of Europe. Um, which is great for them because that means that their um, their, their less constrained East Coast hub can get a, 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 some some real transatlantic route network going. Um, you've got airlines like Frontier getting some. Um, you've got Iberia and Aer Lingus, right? So the IAG airlines that have that sort of uh, west, very far Western European uh, hub network. Um, Qantas has also ordered thirty six, um, which is very impressive. Um, given that Qantas is already a uh, well, is 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 a 737 operator presently. Jetstar, of course, has the A320 family. Um, speaking of uh, airline groups splitting their orders between the two, but you know the thing that Qantas can do now is they've long wanted to start flying long haul in and out of other Australian centres, just than than the main state capitals, right? So uh, beyond Sydney, beyond Melbourne, beyond Perth, beyond Brisbane, to you know significantly smaller cities, and that's that's a fantastic opportunity for them and for a lot of airlines. John, as you mentioned, the launch of this aircraft, well, you know, look, it's for many, it's the new 757, but the launch of this aircraft has ignited the conversation about twin aisle versus uh, single aisle comfort. And uh, 
there's been a lot of travelers been going back and forth on Twitter with this specific topic in mind and some making the the very good case that of course twin aisle space allows you to do more stretching in the aisle have more stand-up conversations in the aisle during your flight it ensures that passengers in the back of the bus aren't dealing with a constant stream of passengers needing that specific uh, lab space and the perception of space and the actuality of space are notable and important to many passengers in fact I, I had a conversation with my mother last week and it was funny this this story broke and it was literally just after having a chat with my mom who had been uh, on an Aer Lingus uh, narrow body to Ireland and she said I, I was on a small aircraft it wasn't very comfortable so there are people that prefer they view Twin Isle uh, as a more comfortable ride You've been somewhat uh, challenging some of those types of comments on social media. What's your take? Yeah, I mean, look, I think we've got to compare apples and apples again, right? Um, I, I think that the the existing single aisles are thirty ish year old seven five sevens that we're talking about, um, and the twin aisles have essentially all been upgraded into at least late two thousands levels of comfort and passenger experience. Um, I find it really interesting that a lot of the people who are decrying the idea of, of a long haul body are also the ones who are like, wow, you know, these new refurbished Delta 757s are incredible, right? You'd never know. That right. might be some Boeing fanboys. <laughs> right. You know, you know look, I, 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 I tend to discount this idea that, that someone's a fanboy of one or the other, right? I mean, I think that both airframers make good aircraft, right? Both airframers make aircraft that can be comfortable. Um, there are, you know, you, you can't discount the, the role of airframers in creating spaces for comfort, but, um, you know, you can, you can use these air, aircraft very flexibly. Um, I think that we also, not enough people have taken into account, and this is, you know, Airbus's fault here, that we're going to see these aircraft used, uh, using the new airspace cabin, right? With the new bigger bins, um, with the new cabin look and feel, um, with the new entryway, um, with new monuments, um, with uh, new lavatory options. And, and I'm, I'm also fascinated that, that people are somehow feeling that, that the wide-body passenger experience is necessarily uh, a bed of roses and, and that the narrow-body passenger experience is a bed of thorns. Um, you know, you look at these, um, you know, look at the Air Canada 777-300ER and the passenger to lavatory, lavatory ratio there, particularly in economy, right? You've got the best part of 400 people using far too few lavatories. Um, absolutely, you may well hit this same problem on any narrowbody plane, and indeed on the A321XLR, um, it is one of the many trade-offs that we that people have to make. That said, I think there is an inherent passenger experience advantage in being able to fly non-stop from smaller markets rather than connecting. Right? You know, whatever the passenger, no matter how many minutes I have to stand for the for the for the loo at the back of the plane, that's better than sitting on a CRJ for two hours, having had to gate check my luggage, and you know, walking across a rainy airfield to get to a bus, right? There's just an inherently better experience flying nonstop than connecting. Um, and I think that, that that's also being lost a bit, right? The fact that, that you know, a lot of people um, who, who talk about planes on social media um, are based in major cities, right? I mean, whereas Mary, you and I, I think, are, are based at secondary uh, secondary cities, right? You know, your closest airport is Philadelphia or maybe Baltimore, right? Mine is Lyon. You know, um, it's not Washington Dulles or New York JFK or London Heathrow, right? And, um, you know, I think it's for, for, for airports like ours that, that we'll see, you know, a huge benefit 
from from the ability to uh, economically operate this sort of of smaller aircraft that better fits the markets um, from, from from our cities. And uh, I think that's you know there will always be an opportunity if you love long haul narrow bodies and uh, long haul wide bodies so much. There will always be an opportunity to connect to one, right? Max, do you take a, a stand on wide body comfort versus narrow body? I don't think it's that hugely different. Uh, although the passenger perception of the difference could could be a deciding uh, a deciding factor. But I'll go out on a limb because that's what I like to do. And I'm wondering about how Boeing is going to respond now with the NMA, right? We know that's that's delayed because of the 737 MAX issues. Those same issues are going to end up costing Boeing, I don't know how many billions of dollars uh, in expenses that they hadn't anticipated. What if Boeing goes for the next cycle? Instead of proceeding really with the NMA as had been planned, because it's pushed out and they have all these costs to uh, to absorb, what if they go towards the next cycle in the next generation of aircraft? And I don't know what that is. Uh, engines blended into the fuselage or you know, unducted fans or something like that. Maybe that's a crazy idea, but uh, you know this might have changed Boeing's long-term strategy. I don't know. Maybe that's crazy. No, I, I don't think it's crazy at all, Max. Um, I've been saying this week that a smart move for Boeing and a confident play once it has this single, you know, the, the, the 737 MAX all back in the air, is to say, actually, we're not going to do the NMA at all. We're going to go straight to the FSA, which is a future short-haul aircraft, right, the replacement for the 737. Um, and I think that for every month that the 737 stasis continues, that becomes more likely. Uh, for a bunch of reasons, right? Um, it means that we're closer to the fact to, to, to the time at which we'll have new engines, right? Boeing is in a situation like, like every airframe is, where there is a shortage of qualified uh, structural and aerospace engineers. Yes. They can't run two programs at once, so they can't run the NMA and the FSA at the same time. Um, if I'm Boeing, I look at the shrinking size of the NMA market. Um, I say, well. Can we do something cheap and cheerful with the 7878, right? Um, we know it's a lot of airplane, but can we do something along the lines of what Delta's been taking in terms of uh, late model A330s? Um, can we do something regional with it? Can we derate things? Uh, can we just sell it at a bit of a loss so that we don't get completely creamed in this market, right? Um, mm. And 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 says, look, well then we'll we'll develop the next one. And what they do is develop the next one, uh, and the the default size uh, starts at A321 size rather than A320 or 737-8 size, right? So that you're automatically able to edge up into the to to the lower end of the middle of the market. Um, yeah, I, that, is that going to happen? Probably not in the way I've described, but but I think it becomes more likely with every month that that we keep going on this. John, isn't NMA uh, envisaged as a as a twin aisle at this juncture? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's basically it's it's <laughs> there are two ways in which it is two planes right now, right? There's a smaller version, two twenty ish, large version, two seventy ish, and they're also trying to figure out whether the form they make is the American market version or the Chinese market version, um, and the difference between the two wants there are around cargo capacity versus passenger capacity, which changes the shape of the aircraft, 
right? It, it changes which way your oval goes, right? Is your oval tall or is your oval wide, right? The question for Boeing is, whichever way they choose, they're sort of saying, well, actually, we, we can't serve the entire middle of the market with this one aircraft, right? And for every time that, that you know, you have another... Um, another set of A321XLR orders, or for every time that, and Airbus has been very clear about this, it intends to go do some very aggressive pricing with the A330, right, to to serve the other end of the middle market, right? Let's say you're Air China, China Eastern, China Southern, right? Um, Do you just say, well, actually, we can get a whole lot of cheap A330s now, Neo, CO, whatever, right? Choose your poison. Um, And basically do what Boeing just did with IAG in the 737, 8 and 10, right? Just go out there and say, hey, look, we've got some really cheap planes that we would like to sell. Um, I, you know, Airbus has been clear that that's what it's going to go do. Now, how much does that affect the upper end of the middle of the market, right? Um, Boeing stole the, the that bit out from under the nose of, uh, from, with Hawaiian Airlines, from under Airbus's nose last year at the Farnborough Air Show. Um, Isan Munir, the sales uh, chief at Boeing, was in a Hawaiian shirt last year. And indeed, this year, he cracked a joke about not being in a Hawaiian shirt this year. Um, there was not, not a lot of, of, of uh, rum punch being drunk at uh, the Boeing chalet, you know, I've got to tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's absolutely a, an interesting question. Um, you drop the price of A330, what does that do to the middle market? How many A330s do you sell then? Um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a tough one. There are a lot of moving parts here a lot of moving parts. And a lot of it's around, you know, some of the some of the really difficult things to engineer, like engines, right? Um, and it's important not to forget that that, you know, we there's only two main players in in when we when we start talking about this size of aircraft. And, you know, I'll finish up my, my bit of a diatribe by saying if this was not the 737, if this was any other aircraft, would we have had this narrative about the 737 is going to fly again. It's a 737, right? This smacks a little bit to me of too big to fail. Right, yeah. And I'm not sure that work, that ends well for the industry. Hmm. That's a good point. Um, what I, I know we are, we're rapidly coming to a close here. One thing that I hope we can get to talk about maybe in the future is what the very specific PAX-X on the A321XLR is going to look like because I have to say, I confess, I'm a little concerned uh, because we have seen narrow bodies, of course, flown on transatlantic routes, including by Norwegian, that have you know don't even have uh, seatback entertainment. And it's a little bit worrisome that airlines might use the opportunity <laughs> to devolve PAX-X a little bit uh, down back even further. But uh, perhaps a topic for another time. We are rapidly coming to a close. I want to thank our listeners and our sponsor, the Jetliner Cabins eBook app. And remember, you can find us online at RomeGirlNetwork.com and on Apple and Google Podcasts. Be sure to follow all the Romeo Girl Network activity on Twitter at, at @RomeGirl, and remember to use the PaxX hashtag when tweeting about the passenger experience. John, a big thank you for joining us. Where can listeners find you at? Well, find me on Twitter at that's John, of course, on Runway Girl Network, and of course, the RGN In Conversation podcast, uh, which is also available on iTunes. Fantastic. John, always a pleasure. So we'll ask all of you to join us again next time as we talk about the passenger experience on the PaxX podcast. Take care, everyone. 